Father, we do thank you so much for this this uh, morning. Thank you so much for the privilege we have to uh, come before you to uh, sing your praises, declare your excellencies, and to hear your word. And Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts, or that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word, to allow you to do your work in us, to work that which is pleasing in your sight. So we ask you to bless this time we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Colossians, and we have seen that Jesus Christ is all that we need. That he is all that we need. That uh, the bad guys are going to want to pull us away to trust in other things, to lean on our own understanding, to rely on man's wisdom. But all we need is Christ. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we know that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we know that in him we have been made complete. We're complete. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. And within that we also know, as we saw last week, that he is the head over all rule and authority. And we'll see our next time in Colossians that he has triumphed over all rule and authority. Uh, God has triumphed over all rule and authority through Christ and what he has done on the cross. And as I was thinking about his absolute uh, authority and victory over Satan and his minions, I thought we would take a little diversion today and look at a passage that helps us apply those truths within our relationship with the Lord. Because although Christ is above all rule and authority, although greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, uh, we still have an enemy in this short time, in this day of evil. We still have an enemy who tries to uh, destroy us, tries to devour us, uh, to, to completely uh, pull us away from Christ in terms of a practical trust on a day-to-day basis. And so I thought we should look at a passage that will be very helpful in uh, being uh, uh, protected from the evil one. And certainly as we begin this church, as we plant this church, uh, we would be naive to think that Satan isn't going to attack. That he isn't going to attack us, attack one another. That he isn't going to try to use his tactics that he has from the beginning to discourage us, to cause us to get angry, to cause us to turn away and, and give up, whatever it might be. And so we need to be on the alert. We need to be ready. So would you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, you might have been with us a couple years ago when we went through 1 Peter, a wonderful book. And uh, Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor. Uh, they are suffering for Christ. They are about to go through a fiery ordeal. Uh, Nero, the emperor of Rome, is about to bring persecution uh, on the church, very difficult persecution. And Peter has written to show these believers and us how chosen sojourners, temporary residents on this earth, are to live. How we're to live. And how we're to live in the midst of hostility and persecution that comes our way for following Christ. Peter has shared our great salvation uh, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
and we have, and then we rejoice in this, and we have an inheritance, under, imperishable, undefiled, reserved for us in heaven. We have so great a salvation, and within that, we're supposed to uh, recognize that, and recognize, and put our focus on Christ, and recognize this great salvation, and even the sufferings on our way to glory are that which will bring praise and honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Having shared our great salvation, we're to fix our hope on Christ alone. We're to be holy and live in the context of godly fear and love for the body of Christ. And then we are to yearn for the word of God, that which we were brought forth with. We were born again through the living and abiding word of God, and we're to yearn for that same word of God that we might grow in respect to salvation. And he shared the wonderful truth that we corporately are being built up as a spiritual house, holy priests to offer sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we are a distinct people that haven't had his mercy but now have received his mercy that we would proclaim his excellencies. And then in chapter 2 verse 11 he begins to apply these great truths of our relationship with the Lord where we see that because we're aliens and sojourners, temporary residents on this earth, we are to stay far away from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls. And that's the foundational statement for the rest of the book. And then we have the first application. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. So that in the very thing that they're slandering you, they're going to praise God instead in the day of visitation. They might glorify God. And then from that point, he began to discuss how we're to live among ordered relationships as temporary sojourners. How to uh, relate to the governing authorities, all men, households, slaves, masters. Knowing that our response to suffering brings about redemptive opportunities. As we see that Christ, who suffered for us, uh, brought about our redemption. As we follow in his footsteps, it brings about opportunities for people to come to Christ. He left us a tracing pattern, an example to follow. And we are, as Christ did, to continue to entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously, knowing that God will use our response to unjust suffering for his glory. Then in chapter 3, we see that wives are likewise to quietly submit to their husbands without fear. And husbands are to live with their wives according to wisdom or in an understanding way. And that all of us are to be like-minded, humble. We are to be uh, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit towards one another. Because God's ears are towards the righteous and his, his face is against those who do evil. We're not to be intimidated by those who bring persecution but do what is right. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, being ready to make a defense for why we have hope, yet with gentleness and reverence. We're to keep a good conscience and do what is right, remembering Christ first suffered for doing what is right, the just for the unjust. And that brought about our redemption. The just for the unjust. We're the unjust, Christ the just. And then in chapter 4, we see in light of Christ's suffering that we are to arm ourselves for the same purpose. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He goes on to explain that as to no longer live for the will of men or the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
And if you do so, you're going to be maligned by those who you no longer run with in terms of excess dissipation. And then we see that because uh, the Lord is ready to judge the living and the dead, we're to be encouraged. But we're also encouraged to be careful to to because the end of all things is at hand, that it's drawing near, we are to be prayerful. And we're to be sober in spirit. We're to be in our right minds so that we can pray. And we are to continually, fervently love one another and then faithfully serve one another with the giftings that God has given us, those grace gifts. And then at the end of chapter 4, we see how we are to suffer, how we are to respond when suffering. We're not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon us for our testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree we share the servants of Christ, we're to keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. We're to keep entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then in chapter 5, Peter moves to his, I might have said Paul, but that's Peter, that's Peter. Peter moves to his final exhortations for these believers. As a fellow elder, elder exhorting uh, among the elders and among these believers, he shares that they're to shepherd the flock, they're to feed, protect, they're to lead those in charge for the with the right motives, focusing on the chief shepherd who will bring the reward. And then we all are to humble, humbly submit to God. The youth submitting to their elders and all of us putting on the garment of humility towards one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. And knowing in the midst of our difficulties that we should be casting our cares upon him. For he cares for us. And that brings us to our passage, how we can withstand, for a temporal time, Satan's fierce opposition. The opposition we will experience as believers when we suffer for doing what is right. When you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to suffer temporarily. And if perhaps God might will it so, we see if perhaps we're going to suffer. So let's take a look at our passage, First Peter chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 because we don't have time to do the rest, but we'll read through 10 and 11 because it all goes together. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how can we withstand such a powerful foe? How can we withstand his attacks? Well, first of all, we need to realize we are going to experience opposition when we follow Christ. If you want to follow Christ, you are going to be opposed. If you want to go your own way, there's no opposition that. The, the road is easy. But when you want to follow Christ, it is difficult. And if you come to a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're going to want to follow him. You're going to want to follow him. So notice he says here, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. 
we have an adversary. What do you think of when you think of the word enemy? What do you think of? Webster's Dictionary says it's one who is seeking to injure, overthrow, confound, to harm. It's an enemy. We know that Satan is the Lord's enemy. An enemy sowed the tares, right? We see that in Matthew. And he is thus our enemy. And here we have the phrase adversary. Your adversary. He's speaking to believers, those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, your adversary. The term adversary speaks of an opponent, an enemy, one who is constantly hostile towards you. And you're all going, I didn't want to hear this message this morning. (laughs) I don't want to hear about all this bad stuff. Well, it's great to hear about it because then we know how to respond and we realize how great our God is who has overcome our enemy. And then we don't get caught and and devoured uh, naively. So here, we have an adversary. Your adversary. And he says the devil. Now folks, we're going to see that our opposition will come through people. It'll come through those who are in Satan's domain. We saw that in Nehemiah, right? We see it throughout Scripture. It also comes through believers who have given a place to Satan. A little temporary opposition there. Satan will use whatever tool he can use, as we'll see. But our struggle, as Paul would share in Ephesians, is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We have an adversary. And this adversary has a whole group of those who are on on his side, in a sense, on the losing side. And they're out to get us. We have adversaries. We need to see that. We need to not be naive. Not be naive. You know, anybody who is in the military and is going into battle is not naive about who their enemy is. They've been taught who their enemy is. They know who they are. They don't just go in and say, just shoot at anybody. They tell you who your enemy is. And you know who your enemy is. And we have an enemy. Now, I mentioned that Satan does use people. Uh, we saw in Job's suffering. Uh, now, we think the, the things that happened first were bad, and they were terrible. The loss of his family, the loss of everything, and then his physical harm from Satan allowing, but God not allowing him to. You think that's, that's, that's horrible. God allowed that, and we know in the end, James, that God is merciful and compassionate. We see the end of the story. But within that, we often don't think of what else Satan did, which the whole book is about, which was he used three of his friends to come against him. But God used that for good to reveal in a righteous man areas he needed to work on. And he did reveal that in the life of Job. We also know with Judas, Satan used him very specifically. We know after he ate the morsel, Satan entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly, John thirteen twenty seven. Satan very specifically used Judas to betray our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul asks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for deliverance 
from evil men. Yes, our battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but it comes in the context of flesh and blood. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we may be delivered. Pray for this from, 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 from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. And then he says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from here is the one behind it, the evil one. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it comes in the context of flesh and blood. But we don't need to study our earthly enemies. We need to study and see our enemy, but not focus on him, but just know what God says about him and focus on Christ. We don't want to be fixated on our enemy, fixated on Satan. We need to be fixated on Jesus Christ. And yet we need to understand what God says about our adversary to be protected from. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he has his servants. Uh, we know he disguises himself as an angel of light, and so do his servants. It's not surprising. And there are false brethren doing Satan's will. We see that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see that uh, those who are foolish and have ignorant speculations that produce quarrels, he says they are in the, Timothy says they're in the snare of the devil, being held captive to do his will. People are held captive to do Satan's will. But yet we also know believers can temporarily do things that Satan would be very pleased about. Remember when Peter um, was uh, trying to defend Jesus from going to the cross? Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. And this is after he declared the Lord's Lord uh, very clearly. He says, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. At that moment, Peter was being used by Satan. We know in Ephesians chapter 4 that believers can give Satan a place. Very serious. Ephesians 4, be angry and yet do not sin. 4.26, do not let the sun go down in your anger. And even that word is the word not anger, it's, a, it's the word alongside anger. Just those feelings that come along with it. Don't even be irritated by the time it's nighttime. He says here, and do not give the devil an opportunity or a place. If you don't get over it, if you're not one who is forgiving and letting those things go, if you don't get over it, you give Satan a place in your heart towards those people. Not good. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are to forgive in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. He takes advantage of believers. You don't forgive somebody temporarily. You, you will eventually if you're a true believer. God's going to spank you till you're forgiven, right? You're forgiving them, right? You're already forgiven, right? But in that, he says that no advantage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. But our enemy is not people. It's not your brother or sister who gave a place to Satan for a moment. It's not those non-believers out there, evil men and perverse people. It's not our enemy. Our enemy and our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against Satan and those of his demonic minions. That's So back in our passage, Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire, to desire, to devour. 
Now in verse 8, we have two imperative commands. Be sober spirit, be on the alert. And then the reasoning. The reasoning is, the devil, your adversary, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Your adversary, your opponent, your enemy, who is constantly hostile towards you, seeks one of you to devour. This doesn't say he's seeking non-believers to devour. We're going to see that term devour means to swallow up completely. It's not, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It means you are devoured in the sense of your relationship with Jesus. You've been swallowed up. You're not trusting him. You're used by Satan for a time. You're ineffective. You're in sin and misery. And you're making everyone else around you miserable. Being used by Satan. So here, do you realize that when you came to faith, the enemy of Jesus Christ became your personal enemy? Your personal enemy? Now, let's take a look at our enemy a little bit so that we can understand his schemes. Just look at what Scripture says about that, and then we'll move to back to the passage. But you might remember when we went through the book of Ezekiel. That was a long time ago, 2006. <laughs> Maybe we'll go through it again. You might remember in Ezekiel 28, we saw Lucifer's life story. Now, I'm not going to read the verses, but I'm going to give you the references. You can go back and read those. For time's sake, I don't have time to walk through those, but I'm going to give you the, the summary of what we say. We see in Ezekiel 28, verse 11, that he was created perfect in wisdom and beauty. Created being, by the way. He's a cherub. That's an angel, by the way. He was in Eden. He was covered with jewels reflecting God's glory. He was Lucifer, light bearer. And we see, and the NSB doesn't do a very good job, but the New King James does a better job in this. He was created to praise God in song. No wonder we got so much false music out there under the name of Christ. Really satanic, by the way. Do you remember his grand privileges? Ezekiel 28, verse 14. He was the anointed cherub who covers... He had a special place, a special anointing, a covering cherub reflecting the glory of God in his beauty. Satan was the most beautiful creation, an angel of cherub with the grandest of privileges. He was on God's holy mountain and he was created without sin. He was created without sin. But in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14, we see that although created perfect and blameless, he fell because of his great pride. He sinned against the living God, and he was cast out of heaven for all to be appalled at him, all who know him to be appalled at him. Ezekiel 28, 15 to 19 and Isaiah 14. And we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that he took a third of the angels with him. So then we have the most beautiful, powerful angel having fallen, uh, wise angel having fallen, uh, now we see coming against the people of God, an adversary. Now what are his schemes? Second uh, Corinthians 2.11, we're not ignorant of his schemes, Paul says. We're not ignorant of it, we know that, right? We know our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Right? Now, this phrase, schemes, uh, methodia, speaks of his method or procedure. It speaks in context of his devious methods, his stratagems, his devious attacks, his tricks. It's his modus operandi. How does he, how does he function? We have 
in the word how he functions so that we can be protected and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, not be taken a captive, not be uh, taken for a dark ride. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. We have his four names, his four names. Revelation 20, verse 1. And this is after Jesus has uh, uh, brought forth his judgment upon the earth. This is at the end of the tribulation after it's complete, going into the millennium. And we have this statement in chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he... He laid hold of the dragon, there's one, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. we got four names there. First of all, he's called the dragon. And when you see the passages that speak of him as the dragon, you see God is wanting to expose one element of his character. He's a, he's a dragon. He's a, he's a vicious reptile. That's the dragon with his tail that swept a third of the angels. It's a metaphoric description that likens him to a monstrous reptile, the dragon. Secondly, he is the serpent of old. He is spoken of metaphorically as a cunning serpent. We know that he came in the context of a serpent in the garden. He was the most cunning of all the animals, right? In a sense, the serpent. It it refers to his wicked deception of Eve in the garden, the serpent of old. We also know that he is the devil. Greek word diabolos. Diabolos. Now, you can't always do this with Greek, and you can't do it with English either. If I say butterfly, that's not butter flying in the air, right? But uh, sometimes in Greek you can. Dia means through. Bolos means throw. He is the throw-through. He is the one who divides. He uses sin to divide. He is the throw-through. And he's also called Satan, which means adversary. Adversary. Now we know from Revelation chapter 12, he is the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly going before God, accusing believers. He is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12. Let's turn it for a second. Revelation 12. Now, this is in the middle of the tribulation in context. And he is, there's great war in heaven and he's thrown down and he's furious at this point. This is the middle of the tribulation, a seven year tribulation that's to come. The Lord will take us before that. We're not destined for wrath. Revelation 12 verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. Isn't that great? Amen. And there were no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. This is not his original fall because he has access right now to heaven. We see that in Job. This is in the middle of tribulation where he's thrown out permanently. He is evicted. We see here, no place in And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. There you go. Notice this. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now this is probably us, by the way, because we'll be there. 
The Lord will have taken us, and we will be with the Lord in heaven when this happens. And notice this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. See, so when we're in heaven, glorified, we're going to hear him accusing our brethren on earth. He's accusing them day in and day out. But praise the Lord, he's thrown down. He says, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. It's another part of his modus operandi. He's an accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. We see that in Zechariah chapter, chapter 3, where he accuses uh, the high priest. We see that. Joshua the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Zechariah 3. He had stood there to accuse the high priest, and the Lord rebuked him and gave uh, Zechariah clean robes and a clean turban. He is also the tempter. We see that in Matthew chapter 4 when he came to tempt the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him. He's called the tempter. He's also called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5. So we have the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, accused of the brethren, and the tempter. Very descriptive uh, names for our enemy that give us insight into his nature. Now, what do we know about his schemes and his procedures and his nature? We know from what the Lord Jesus said very clearly that, first of all, his nature is he is a liar and a murderer. John eight forty four, the Lord Jesus is uh, reproving the Jews who believe they had a relationship with God through uh, being Jews, through Abraham in a sense. And he's saying, hey, Abraham's not your father, spiritually speaking. He's going to say who their real father is. He says in John 8:44, you are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand on the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There you go, murderer and a liar. We know that Satan from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 has the power or had the power of death. But that was conquered through Christ and what he did on the cross. He rendered Satan powerless who had the power of death. That is the devil. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I mentioned this before, that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He portrays himself to be an elect angel, an angel of light. And his servants do the same thing. They disguise themselves. Remember, he's the tempter. This is what happened in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, he tempted Eve to doubt God's goodness, to doubt uh, God's word, and then to cause her to, to trust in her own analysis rather than to believe what God said. The reality is the process of temptation uh, begins with us wanting to... to uh, Trust our own evaluation rather than what God has said in his word. Remember, man's wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. James chapter 3. Now, Satan's a powerful foe, yet not everything is Satan. Not everything that goes bad is Satan. We've got to be careful. We can't say the devil made me do it. Right? James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. God will never tempt you, by the way. For God 
cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God will never tempt you. He does not tempt. It is Satan. And he has given us the tools and the way to be delivered from temptation through his son, Jesus Christ. We see here, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Your own desire carries you away. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We have a powerful foe, but it's not all him. We've got to be aware of our flesh, our unredeemed flesh, and our own desires. Folks, we need to recognize that when we rely on our own wisdom, we give Satan a platform. We rely on man's wisdom, we give him a platform. We've been seeing in Colossians that the bad guys come in the context of man's wisdom rather than Christ in whom are all the treasures, wisdom and knowledge. When you rely on your understanding of the circumstance, your feelings about it, rather than what God says, rather who he is, we're going right along with our enemy. You see, we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart. We're not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we're to acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. And the writer of Proverbs says, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. So Satan's going to use those things to try to tempt us. And what he does is tries to tempt us to believe our judgment is just as valuable as God's. That our judgment, our understanding is just as valuable to operate on than God's judgment and understanding. Now another scheme that Satan uses, and that's what he does with Eve, right? In the garden. Very clearly. Another way he uses, he capitalizes on our sin and disobedience. Very effectively. We saw this earlier that uh, we were warned in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, I think it is. We're not, we're to be angry, but sin not. We're not to sin. We're not to let the sun go down. We shouldn't even be angry by the time it's nighttime. Even on our irritation. If you do, you give Satan a place. If you have an issue towards somebody, let it go. Colossians says, if you have anything against anybody, forgive. If you don't do that, you give Satan a place in your heart towards those people. And you mess with them, and you mess with God's people, and everyone around you is not going to be happy. It's going to be difficult. We also know that he capitalizes on being unloving and unforgiving. We see in 2 Corinthians that they were to reaffirm their love for a brother who was forgiven. And they were to forgive him in order that Satan would take no advantage. When we're unloving and we're unforgiving, Satan takes advantage. Comes right in, swoops right in, in our mindset. He can't come in us, but he can influence our thinking. We give him a tupon, a place. He also capitalizes on when we are worldly, when we want our way. That's being worldly, by the way. You want to know what worldliness is? It's wanting your way. It's wanting your way over God's way. Look at James chapter 4. We know this. What's the source of your quarrels? You know, you, you lust but you don't have, right? We know that, right? That's worldliness, by the way, functioning by man's wisdom. And the, the apostle James says in verse, in verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world, James 4, 4, is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? 
He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, and you're proud if you're functioning on your own wisdom. You want your way, and you don't get it, and you start fighting and quarrel. You're being proud. You're not trusting the Lord. You're not relying on him. You're being just like Joe World over there, or Susie World. The same thing. Same thing. He says here, God is opposed to the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. Isn't that wonderful? Therefore, it says, he says that God, uh, therefore it says, submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to take that advice, shouldn't we? Take those commands to heart. Take those commands to heart. So then, we see he uses, uh, people. He uses believers. We saw in Nehemiah they used those non-believers to try to frighten, demoralize, and discourage the builders of the wall so that they'd quit. He wants you to quit. He wants you to give up on your marriage, at least emotionally, maybe not running out, but emotionally. He wants you to give up on your job, whatever, in your head. Or maybe you actually do it. He wants you to give up your serving in the church. He wants to give up. Say, I give in, it's too hard. I can't do it. He wants you to give up, to be discouraged. And quit. He actually desires, as we'll see, to devour us. To swallow us up. Completely. So then we have the most powerful foe. He's our constant adversary, the accuser. He's a murderer, a liar, the father of lies. He's a monstrous reptile like such, like a cunning serpent, who is our adversary enemy, who opposes the work of God, and thus opposes we who are the Lord's and desire to serve the Lord. So what are we to do? Well, God gives us the answer in our passage. Verse 8, 1 Peter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's a pretty graphic uh, picture. When a lion is roaring, that means they're about to attack. They're about to attack. A roaring lion is one that is about to attack. You know, I can't do a lion very well, but that's what they do. They're about to attack. Satan, although he was completely defeated at the cross, when we allow through, as we'll see, lack of diligence and watchfulness and faith, lack of faith, we can allow him to temporarily devour us spiritually. And guess what? There's a lot of Christians that are temporarily devoured spiritually. They've been messed up by not obeying God's word and thus Satan devouring them. The term devour speaks of gulping up completely. Gulping it up. Speaks of destroying. The devil continually habitually seeks to devour believers. He can't devour them eternally. But he can sure put you on the sidelines. He can sure use you to mess with other believers. Sure can do that. You know, the Lord wants us to live at peace with one another. That's not Satan's plan. Satan's plan is envy, strife, struggle, problems. Whether it's in church, whether it's in marriage, whether it's whatever it is. At work. Speaks of gulping up, devouring. But we are to resist him, as we'll say. We're to resist him, firm in the faith, as we'll see. He's on the prowl. 
He's looking for someone to devour. Is that you today? Was that you yesterday? He's looking for someone who is weak in themselves and not strong in Christ. Who is not strong in Jesus. Who is not trusting in Him. Who is not strengthened in the Lord. Looking for someone to devour. Are you going to be that person? Are you going to let Him do that to you and mess with other people around you? God's Word says no, we shouldn't, right? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This ought to cause us to be concerned about where our thoughts are at, about what we do with our thinking, as we'll see, about what we do in our minds, as we'll see. There is great spiritual danger for believers, especially those who are serving the Lord. These believers in Asia Minor Minor were serving the Lord and they were suffering and that's where Satan's going to try to take advantage. You all here, you're serving the Lord. You moved here to, 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 to serve the Lord. You'd be naive to think Satan isn't prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to devour you and me. The Bible says he's doing that, right? They were suffering. And we are too, because if you do what's right, you're going to suffer. If you do what's right at work, you're going to suffer. You do what's right in your marriage, you're going to suffer. You do what's right in church, you're going to suffer. And that's the platform for Satan to come in and devour you. But God doesn't want that to happen. You see, he said earlier that we're to humble ourselves. That we're to um, cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. We're to cast our cares Yet when we suffer, we're generally vulnerable and he wants to devour, devour us, swallow us up. So what are we to do? Look at our passage. Now we have some commands and let's take a look at them. We've seen the reason, but let's look at some commands. Verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be of sober spirit. The word speaks of self-control. It speaks of not being controlled by other things, such as worry, fear, anger, or alcohol, or drugs. And what is it that causes us not to be a sober spirit? Focusing on the circumstances and the people. Focusing on the issues rather than on Jesus Christ. Be of sober spirit. It's a command. Earlier in chapter 1, we are to gird our minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix our eyes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to get our thoughts in order. I'm surprised at how easily Christians allow their minds to go way south, and I mean demonically south, way south. We're to be of sober spirit. It's a command. Gather your thoughts together rightly. Throw out those ones that aren't true. Believe what God says, as we'll see in a minute. Believe what he says. In chapter 4, verse 7, in First Peter, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Kind of hard to pray when your mind's all over the place. Prayer gets kind of skewed. Because all you want to do is think about the people that did something to you or whatever happened or this and that, and you, oh, no, not good. 
Be a sober spirit. Get your thoughts in order. Get your thoughts in order. You need to catch yourself when you're not sober spirit. You say, I'm not thinking right, Lord. Help me. Grasp, get your thoughts in order. Now, the word of God, as we'll see, helps us renew our minds and get our thoughts in order. And the God of the word is the one that does that through that. Get your thoughts in order. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Because he cares for you, casting your cares upon him. And guess what? He's not some God in heaven with lightning bolts. You get your thoughts in order. You know, (laughs) he loves us. We saw in in Hebrews chapter 4, we can boldly, confidently come before his throne and receive mercy. I need help, Lord Jesus, and find grace. Help me think rightly. My thoughts are all over the place. Go before his throne, get in his word. Let him change your heart and your mind. When we're not thinking rightly, we are vulnerable to being devoured. We're vulnerable to being devoured. Do you recognize when your mind is consumed with worry, fear, anger, whatever it might be, you are about to be devoured. You're about to be devoured, gulped up completely spiritually. Therefore, be of sober spirit. Be of sober spirit. We're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication uh, with thanksgiving, we're to make our requests known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4. Six and seven. We're to cast our anxiety upon him or our cares, for he cares for him, for us. Throw it upon him. This is what's happening, Lord. It's really distressing me. I'm, I'm, I'm torn up inside, Lord. I'm giving it to you. Cast upon him. Notice he says, be of sober spirit. Get your thoughts together, first of all. If you don't want to be divided by Satan, get your thoughts together. Secondly, notice he says, be on the alert. Second command. Because Satan is on the prowl. Be on the alert. This, this, this roaring lion is ready to pounce on and devour you, so be on the alert. If you're not on the alert, you're going to get devoured. If you let thoughts just fly along, you're not alerted to the fact, oh boy, I'm, I'm opening the door. If you're if you're holding on to anger or whatever it might be, ah, uh, you gotta be on the alert. And let it go. Be on the alert. Be, speaks of being watchful. It actually means literally keep awake. Now we all like to sleep, we like sleeping every once in a while, right? But spiritually speaking, be awake. We read this earlier, Matthew chapter twenty-six. You can turn there. This was a time in which the Lord Jesus was being tempted yet without sin. He's going to go to the cross. And he's burdened over what is coming uh, in his humanity, and rightfully so. And yet without sin. Matthew 26, 37, And he took with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You think you've got soul problems? Lord Jesus understands. You haven't gone anywhere close to where he went yet. He understands. He says, to the point of death, remain here and keep watch with me. Now the term keep watch is our word. It literally means stay awake. Remain here, keep watch, keep watch. Now he's going to talk about that in the context of prayer in a moment, by the way. And he went away a little way beyond them and fell on his face began and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching, that's our word, and praying that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be on the alert. Keep watch. Keep watch. That means it implies you're praying. It implies you're alert to the danger that is around the corner, that that my thoughts could turn this direction and I could be used in a way that is not good. Lord, help me think rightly. Help me be on the alert from these things and from what the adversary might attempt to do. Be watchful. Keep watchful. Stay awake. Extreme watchfulness. We are vulnerable to the Lord's, to, we are vulnerable to Satan's temptations when we're not watchful. We're not watchful. And what am I on the alert for? For thoughts, reactions to suffering, things that are in contradiction to the Word of God. We're to make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. I need to be on the alert. This is a dangerous thing. I don't think we recognize how dangerous our thoughts can be sometimes, spiritually speaking. We need to step up our view of our thinking at times and say, this is really bad. No. In Christ, we are complete. We have the ability to say no to sin. We'll see this next week. We have died with Christ. We've been raised in newness of life. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. They've been obliterated. And we can, in Christ, be free from sin. Not perfectly. We know we're going to fail. But we need to recognize it's through Christ that we are delivered. Be sober and on the alert. It's a command. (coughs) I want to ask you, are you on the alert? Are you sober or have your circumstances caused you to be drunk with concern? Are you sober? Are you drunk with anger? What is it? Be sober and on the alert. Recognize that you have an enemy who desires to devour you. So how do we respond? What are we to do? Okay, I'm sober on the alert, but what am I to do? Look at our passage. Be sober and on the, be on the alert. Your adversary of the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. The term resist means to resist. (laughs) You know, you see those evil people who are communist-led with their little bumper stickers, resist. You know, they want to resist what's good and bring about what's evil. We want to resist what's evil. We want to resist Satan here specifically. Resist him, firm in your faith. How can we resist such a powerful foe? Should we be saying... Get away from me, Satan! Should we be walking around reproving the devil? There's some Christians that say that's what we should do. We should walk around and reprove the devil. You gotta do it verbally. Well, in scripture, I don't see that as how we're supposed to do this. Even Michael the archangel, Jude, did not dare pronounce a reviling judgment to Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. If the most powerful angel wouldn't do a revealing revealing judgment, but let the Lord rebuke you, then how much more should we not do 
that when people are saying that's what we should do, it's not what we should do. So how do we resist him? Very clearly the context tells us, firm in your faith. Now you might see the term your here is in italics, which means the translators are telling you they believe it's implied. Certainly is in the context. But the text literally says, resist him firm in the faith. And we're going to see that the faith is your faith. It's the same. Uh, the faith that we resist him in is our faith. We're going to resist him trusting him as we're going to see. But the term the faith is important here because that term speaks of the body of truth that we have been handed forth in the word that we believe. It is the content of what we believe. You know, when I say I believe that it's going to rain today, you know, that's not faith, even if it hasn't rained yet. Biblical faith is faith in the person of Jesus in the context of what he has said. What he said. In Acts chapter 6, we see that salvation is spoken of synonymously as being obedient to the faith. The word of God. God says repent and believe. Be obedient to the faith. Uh, God gave pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints till we attain the unity of the faith. Ephesians 4.13 Jude speaks of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God has given us everything we need to believe concerning him and all the circumstances we might encounter, life and godliness. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Romans chapter ten seventeen. The faith is the body of truth we believe concerning Christ. It is the scriptures we believe. We are to resist the devil firm in the faith, or our faith. Firm in believing personally in the person of Jesus and what he has said. That is how you resist the devil. Now the term firm here is the word steros. It's where we get our English word steroid, right? You think of the steroid people, right? They're very strong and firm. Uh, it speaks of being hard, firm, or solid. Solid in the faith, not wishy-washy in the faith. Firm in the faith. You look at what God has said, and you believe it. You believe what God says over your feelings and your understanding of what you're seeing in the circumstance. You believe what God has said over your potential reactions. You believe what God has said. You trust in Jesus. Remember, in Colossians chapter 2, we have been made complete, verse 10. And he is the head and rule over all authority. He's over all of them. He is greater in you than in who is in the world. I believe that. So Satan can't get to me if Jesus is protecting me. We're going to see that the shield of faith extinguishes how many fiery missiles? Ephesians 6. Everyone. Now, yes, does God allow Satan to get at us a little bit? Sometimes, yes like we see in Job, but it's for good, and God uses it for good. But he will not, Satan will not devour you, gulp you up, if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are believing what he has said, firm and strong. Just believe God's word, brothers and sisters. Stop believing your feelings. And believe the word of God. Yes, Satan can cause trouble, but can he devour me spiritually? No. 
if I resist him firm in the faith, if I'm on the alert, if I'm sober, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The implication is that prayer is wound in this firm in faith. Remember, we are to submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil. And what? He will what? Flee from you. If you want to hang out with him for a while, then just give in. If you want to have some uh, difficult times that God doesn't want you to have, then just give in. But trust the Lord instead. And if you failed, if you have failed, confess. Say, Lord God, I have not been sober in spirit. I have not kept watch. I have yielded my thoughts to what is not true. And I've given Satan a place. Forgive me. And you're forgiven. And move forward in, in thankfulness. And move forward. Confess quickly when you're tempted. Confess quickly when you fall. Satan wants you to think, oh, you failed so much. No, no, no. You, you're a child of God. You've been forgiven. Press forward. And now be on the alert. Resist the devil. Firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. And then notice he's going to give an illustration of what we need to know. It's part of from the word. Just in front of faith, knowing. I know something from God's word. That helps me. I know truth. It's an, it's an illustration here. When I know certain things from God's word, it enables me to trust and to, 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 to do the right thing and to see things rightly rather than to yield and get devoured. He says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're right on track. It's not something odd. It's not something strange. It's, don't be, uh, surprised. You're a believer and Satan's attacking you. And his people are attacking. But you need not be devoured. You need not be devoured. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Brothers and sisters, let's not let Satan devour us. Let's not let that happen. God is so good here. We understand the truth of God. And specifically here, hey, your suffering is happening to those around you. It's, it's the norm. It's temporal. It's what's happening, and you're on your way to glory. And notice what he says here. He says, are being accomplished. I like this word. Because the word means, uh, it comes from the Greek word epiteleo. Teleo speaks of a successful completion of what was begun. Epiteleo. He says uh, that God, knowing God has brought, allowed the suffering of the brothers and sisters around the world to come to a successful completion. It's done its job. It's done its good. It's done its good. The suffering that God does allow that we don't do because we're letting Satan come in, God is going to use for super good. For super good. You see, he causes all things to work together for good to those who love and to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we don't look at the things that are seen for those who are temporal, but the things that are unseen for those who are eternal. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. And notice what he says, verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, it's personal, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a small time of suffering for a glorious eternity. And yet during this small time of suffering that God is using for good, Satan wants to destroy, to devour. Don't let him do it. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. Be watchful. Be sober spirit. Stand firm in the faith. Trust the Lord. Get your thoughts in order and believe what God has said over your feelings and what you see. Believe the truth of God. And guess what? There's peace in that, by the way. There's peace. There's no peace in sin, okay? Well, there's peace when you're trusting the Lord. In him you have been made complete, and he is above all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, so much. You're so good and so gracious. And Lord, we've all fallen big ways, little ways, in our t- in we've been devoured, maybe small or large at times. Forgive us for not being on the alert. Forgive us for not being sober in our minds. Forgive us for not trusting you. Lord, I pray we as a body especially would be on the alert, that we would be watchful, that we would resist our adversary firm in our trust of you and what you have said, knowing that you are going to strengthen and confirm and establish us. We thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.